Welcome to Holistic Wellness, a podcast exploring the science and metaphysics of health and wellness. I'm your host, Brandi Searcy, founder and formulator at Rain Organica, where you'll find holistic skincare in one simple routine. either swimming or bodyboarding at the ocean, like boogie boarding at the ocean. And you get caught off guard by a wave and it just tumbles you through the water and you come up kind of sputtering and not quite knowing which ways land. I feel like that's how January of 2022 has started out for me and how a month can have a such have such a different energy from the previous month. I'm really not sure. And I'm still very much reeling and struggling to try to figure that out. I feel like I definitely have been caught up in this rogue wave that is January, 2022. And I almost feel like, um, while part of me is very much caught up in it, there's another part of me that's sitting on the shore watching the whole thing take place and thinking, huh, I wonder what she's going to do next. So um, I'm, this is a long way of saying that I'm not much into resolutions. And I'm not sure what your feelings are about them. Um, I'd love to know. And This is also a way of saying that there's nothing quite like being unsure and kind of feeling in a state of turmoil to really make it necessary to try to grab onto something that you know is real and try to um, grab onto it. For instance, if you're if you're in the ocean and a wave has just turned you topsy-turvy, of course, the very first thing you're looking for is the shore when you come up to try to figure out, to try to get your bearings. And so it's a little bit different when time is the ocean or life is the ocean. And it's this question of what do you set as your, um, what do you set as your shore? Like what what is real, what is your bearing point? And for me, just thinking about it, it made the most sense to think, okay, well, let's take a look back at 2021 and just look at that year as a whole and kind of see where I was in January of 2021 versus where I am now. And um, because 20, both 2020 and 2021 have been quite different. Um, I mean, 2020, of course, was a year like no other. Um, however, January 2021 and January 2022 really shouldn't be that different, right? Like they shouldn't ha- feel as though they have a completely different energy. And yet for whatever reason, and honestly, I can't quite put my finger on why, um, this one feels so much more hectic or 
I'm not even quite sure of what the word is. I think I'm transitioning through some things in my own life and um, I needed a reference point. So for that reason, this is kind of a long way of saying um, to get that reference point, it was taking a look at 2021 in review. And I'm not, I'm not huge on making resolutions and I'm also not huge on looking holistically at a year. However, so many things happened in 2021 that um, for me personally, like in my own health journey, and this is where the conversation really turns and starts to apply, hopefully to your life as well, um, that it made sense to do something new this year. And that was taking a holistic view at 2021 and kind of thinking back through how I got to where I am today. And that really is as easy just to think back on last year alone. So um, for me, rather than things starting in January of 2021, because again, I don't make resolutions, things really, the ball really started rolling in a different direction in March of 2021. And in March, um, I picked up the book, Healing Your Thyroid with Ayurveda, and this is a book by Marianne, Dr. Marianne Tatelbaum, who is an Ayurvedic practitioner. And this was really my first dipping my toe into Ayurveda as a healing system. Um, the extent of my knowledge about Ayurveda prior to 2021 was knowing what the doshas were, like knowing what vata, pitta, and kapha knowing those terms and understanding like the basic characteristics of each in terms of people with a with a vata pitta or kapha type personality but not really understanding that it went beyond so much beyond personality and is really down into the essence of our being and not understanding that these doshas um, define everything in the universe according to ayurveda so, um, and we'll get to that. And it's not necessary to know the the Sanskrit. Um, the intent of this episode is a basic introduction to this um, to this ancient health system. And so, with that, it is sharing my journey to learning what Ayurveda is. And that started in March of 2021. So reading that book, of course, the thing that I was drawn to most were all of Dr. Teitelbaum's herbal teas that she was recommending for helping to heal the thyroid. And they were things that I was trying to do myself because, hey, you know, this is a book on healing your thyroid. Why would I not use it to heal my own Hashimoto's? Um, and I wound up kind of in a, a bad state between starting taking these herbal blends that were recommended in the book and about May of 2021, like things kind of spiraled out of control and downhill quickly. So um, in May, realizing that I was in a bad state, like my liver was hurting and I was having, um, well, it's mostly my liver was hurting <laughs> a lot, like right side pain in the area of my liver. Um, so I wound up 
scheduling a consult with Dr. Teilbaum, who said, oh yeah, you shouldn't be doing those herbal teas that are in the book. And <laughs> so my thought was, of course, why are they in there? And then she went during that very first consultation through, okay, all kind of all of the things that are Ayurveda, like what it means to live an Ayurvedic lifestyle, because it's a completely different system than Western medicine. It's not just about the drugs um, in Ayurveda, those would be the herbs. It's about using food as medicine, which is huge and is something that we don't talk about in the West. Like we're not trained with a, we're, we're not given any kind of nutrition education in school other than the food pyramid, um, which is not helpful. So, um, it was talking through food and here and using food as medicine. And here it wasn't food combining. It wasn't food. Okay. You're supposed to eat this. It was more, how are you taking your food in? Like what state of mind are you in? What state of being are you in when you're um, eating? How are you eating? It was more the how instead of the what. And the other really big thing during that initial consult was um, Dr. Teitelbaum spent quite a bit of time talking about the Ayurvedic lifestyle and the Ayurvedic times of day and a daily rhythm. And for me, as somebody who is an extreme night owl, um, I have a day job and I have a side business and I also have a life and I was trying to do all the things and kind of burning the candle at both ends. Um, definitely not getting enough sleep all the time and using the weekends to um you know catch up on sleep like that's gonna actually work and um i and i was also like a huge night owl um not during the week so much when i had to be up for work and functional the next day but especially on the weekends it was not uncommon for me to stay up until easily midnight if not more like 2 a.m. on the weekends. And um, Dr. Teitelbaum shared that there are these dosha times of day, which it, again, we'll get into that here more in a minute, but what that looks like is there is a time of day for, um, there are heavier times of day, for instance. So the morning times between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m and the evening times between 6 p.m. and 10 p.m. It's a time for winding up and winding back down. Then there are kind of the spiritual or ethereal times of day, and that is between 2 a.m. Um, and 6 a.m. and again between 2 p.m. and 6 p.m. And these are that 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. period especially is kind of more your really creative time of day. Like if you think of it as a work day, um, those are times when typically the creative juices are flowing and you can like get a lot of really um, great ideas and like great brainstorming and, and this kind of thing done during those hours. And then likewise in the morning time between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., ideally you're sleeping for part of it. However, ideally also you would be waking up in the latter part of that 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. period and doing things like meditating and breathing practices. Um, I'm going to be honest, I'm not there yet. I'm not waking up before 6 a.m. Um, I'm waking up right at about 6 a.m. at the end of that uh, 
at the end of that spiritual ethereal time, 6 a.m. to 6.30, if I'm being honest, is the winter time, it's dark. So anyways, um, that is those times of day. And then there's this other special time of day, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and likewise 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Now, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. or 10 um, p.m. to 2 a.m. is the efficiency time, is the transformation time. It's the metabolism, it's the time of day when your metabolism is most active, but again, according to Ayurveda, because it's the time of day that, um, like if, if, if we think of all parts of nature as being whole, like whole together, um, it's the time of day when the sun, of course, is at its zenith, at its highest point. It's also the time of day when your digestion is at its highest point. It would be the time of day when you're able to take in um, food, take in ideas, take in whatever the things may be and digest and transform those things into part of your body. And then likewise, the, and it's also the time of day when you're able to digest, um, I, I feel like I mentioned this already, but just in case, like spend an extra minute here, like digest ideas and like really consume information. Um, and my problem was I was using both that 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. period and also the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. period for my mind. And what Dr. Teitelbaum said is, yeah, that evening period, that 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is really for your body. That's when your body is rebuilding and repairing. Like it's when it's most actively doing those things and you need to be asleep for it. And I remember thinking on that call, yeah, right. I'm going to adopt a bedtime of 10 p.m. And this is one of the things that looking back now in January of 2022, I'm like, oh yeah, like this is why I don't make resolutions because I will definitely break them because of all of the things that I was introduced to about Ayurveda in 2021, the 10 p.m. bedtime has stuck. <laughs> yeah, like I wouldn't have believed if I'd written myself a note now and sent it back in time six or eight months, I'd be like, yeah, she's crazy. Like, I don't even know what universe this girl's from, but it's not this one. Um, so anyways, it's just, it's kind of, it's one of those things that, um, it took, a, it took a while to shift and it definitely took some, it took some habit breaking and it took some habit forming and it alone has made such a profound difference in the symptoms that I'm experiencing with, with Hashimoto's. Now, it alone is not the only thing that I've changed. In addition to, um, it's the biggest thing in terms of Ayurveda that I've incorporated, like successfully incorporated, has become my routine um, into my life when it comes to Ayurveda. The other thing that I did was I stopped taking the birth control pill in July of 2021. Um, and with that, uh, this is also because of Dr. Teitelbaum. In her book, she talks about the liver thyroid connection and how oftentimes like when our thyroid is starting to struggle, it's an indication that our liver isn't processing all the things the way it should be. And um, between her book and uh, 
Dr. Jolene Brighton's book, which I don't remember the name of right now, something about coming off the pill or something like that. But anyway, Dr. Jolene Brighton's book, those two convinced me, plus taking another look at the package insert and, you know, seeing some things that I've never seen in the 20 years that I've been on the pill um, in the package insert, despite having read the package insert before, it just glossed over this uh, section. So anyways, um, I feel like that also has helped definitely with my liver health. I'm, um, my liver feels better. I'm able to sleep again, like fall asleep on my right side, which was something that was impossible for me for a while, <laughs> um, before coming off the pill and, and adopting some of these more Ayurvedic things. And the, of course the question is, well, which is helping more? I don't know. I'm, and I'm not going to go back just to figure and include one, just to figure out if the other one is helping more. I'm not going to do that. I mean, yeah, I'm a scientist, but, um, when it comes to my life and my health, I just make all the changes all the time to try to figure out what's working and what's not. So here I am. Um, so it, it um, again, it's how much adopting an earlier bedtime has helped versus coming off the pill has helped. I'm not sure, but here I am sitting on the other side of it, telling you my liver feels a lot better and my thyroid symptoms are less. Um, I even went so far as to play around over Christmas with pulling gluten back into my diet. And gluten is something that I um, especially struggle with. Um, it's something that definitely causes um, the Hashimoto symptoms to flare. Um, I'm not at a state where I can successfully bring gluten back in, especially not on a daily basis, even with the gluten digest enzymes. Um, I'm, I'm not celiac. I'm definitely gluten sensitive. So I'm not, I'm not there yet. I was um, surprised at how well I was able to tolerate it compared with um, the past. And it gives me hope for perhaps one day being able to tolerate it even more. Um, of course, I'm still very much of the opinion that modern day wheat is not ideal for our health and not something that we should be consuming anyways. It is much different than ancient wheat. And there will be a podcast episode on the hybridization of um, ancient wheat to achieve modern day wheat. How many more gluten proteins in particular are in modern day wheat versus ancient wheat and like how that likely is contributing to the increased incidence of celiac and other uh, diseases associated with gluten sensitivity. So anyways, um, oh, and glyphosate would be another reason for that with um, impairing the gut membrane, um, increasing leaky gut and then making it possible for those proteins to leak out of the gut into um, other parts of the body. But I digress. So with this, um, what, so at this point, what else is Ayurveda? Well, that is a great question. Um, first of all, Ayurveda is a Sanskrit word, 
And it's often translated as knowledge of life or knowledge of longevity. It's an ancient health system. It's been around for over 4,000 years and it originated in India. It views the body holistically. So it views the mind as inseparable from the body and inseparable from the spirit or the soul. And it also views the organs of the body holistically. And this is completely different than Western medicine, which kind of views you have a specialist for everything, right? In Western medicine. Um, so some text, and depending on where you look, you can find that Ayurveda arose between 5,000 and 10,000 years ago. So it's been around a while. Traditional Chinese medicine and Ayurveda both share uh, quite a few commonalities. The knowledge of Ayurveda was revealed to ancient seers called Rishi in India and was passed down orally for centuries, uh, really millennia, until it, it was written down in a number of sacred texts known as the Vedas. And there are four of those. The Rig Veda was written between about 3000 to 2500 BC. The Yajur Veda was written between about 1200 and 1000 BC. The Samveda or Samveda, um, about 1200 to 1000 BC, so about that same time. And the Tharva Veda, about the same time period as well. And these Vedas or these books cover all aspects of health, including healthcare techniques, spirituality, human behavior, government politics, and astrology. From them, the Ayurvedic medicine texts were written, and there are four major texts still used today. So the Sharaka Samhita, which is a major compendium of Ayurvedic medical theory, um, it was compiled in Sanskrit along about 800 BC, and it's still used for training Ayurvedic physicians today. The Ashtanga uh, Ridhya and Ashtanga Sangraha emphasize the material value of life, and they define the workings of the water and the earth elements in life. These texts were written by an Ayurvedic physician um, called Bhagavata around 400 BC. And then lastly, the Shishruta Samhita is a surgical text. Yes, a surgical text that dates to about 700 BC, and it contains information on the Ayurvedic definition of health, and on blood, it has details about marmon points and also about the fire and water elements of the body. It even describes surgical techniques like skin grafting and reconstructive surgery. And this is just mind blowing given the date that it was written. There are also three minor texts that are um, still in print um, for Ayurveda. Before 2000 BC, Ayurveda was categorized into two schools. One of those focused on internal medicine and a second focused on surgery. Now, how does it differ from Western medicine? Ayurveda doesn't focus on a disease or a pathology. It assumes that for a person to be in a state of true health, they must be in balance energetically and Ayurveda seeks the root cause of the disease in order to remove the imbalance from a person's life. So in other words, in Ayurveda, all disease is caused by a state of imbalance. Now, 
there are three in Ayurveda, again, there are three main causes of disease. And at face value, um, you might dismiss these. So just hang, hang tight with me here. The first one is disrespecting your senses. The second one is making choices from a place of ego. And the third one is living in disharmony with the rhythms of nature. So let's break each one of these down because again, um, they sound so simple almost that it's possible just to dismiss them. And they really deserve a little bit more attention than that. All right, so how do you disrespect your senses? When any one of your senses, whether that's smell, sight, taste, touch, or sound is overstimulated, this harms your body and your mind, both of which require moderation and balance for healthy function. So Ayurveda being a holistic wellness system attunes you to the subtler aspects of the world. And we'll talk about that in more detail here in a sec. When you allow your senses to be overstimulated, the body and the mind become confused. So imagine when you eat something really spicy, how well are you able to taste for the next eight to 12 hours? Your taste buds become damaged by that overstimulation. Likewise, when you go to a music concert and you've just exposed your ears and your entire body really to too, like, too loud a noise, um, imagine how easy it is to hear for the few hours after that concert. Now, imagine that you're in a candle store and you're smelling different candles. How many candles can you smell before you no longer are able to detect and discern differences in those smells? Your sense of touch. So touch can be quite pleasurable and when it's too intense, it can be painful. So touching a hot stove, stubbing your toe, our five senses originally provided us with the ability um, for keen awareness of our surroundings. And in today's world of overstimulation, it's easy to overstimulate any one of your senses. And this disrespecting your senses kind of goes beyond overstimulating. With Ayurveda, one of the primary goals is to be in a state of awareness of your body. And so the senses are the way in which we're able to perceive the outside world. We're able to get information about things that are external to us. So when we have too much coming in, we lose that connection with ourselves and within ourselves, um, And that is really the primary way that disrespecting your senses puts you out of tune or rather it impairs your ability to hear your body speak. So one more thing about the senses before we leave this area, each one of the senses is associated with a different element. And um, in Ayurveda, just like in traditional Chinese medicine, everything in the universe is composed of five elements. Now those elements differ between Ayurveda and TCM. In Ayurveda, the five elements are 
space, which is also known as ether, air, and you, if it's easier, you can think of air as wind, fire, water, and earth. So we have ether, air, fire, water, and earth. So that ether element is associated with hearing. The air or the wind element is associated with touch. So just think about wind blowing on your skin and how that feels. Fire is associated with sight. Water is the element that's associated with taste. And earth is the element associated with smell. According to Ayurveda, these five elements compose all things in nature. And those three doshas that I mentioned at the very beginning of the episode are actually combinations of those five elements. So the three doshas, um, vata, pitta, and kapha. So vata dosha is um, composed of ether and air. So it is very light. It is very dry. Um, it is cool. The pitta dosha is made up of fire and a little bit of water. So it is very hot and transformative. Um, it's very spreading, very much like uh, water would spread across the surface. And then kapha dosha is made up of water and earth. So it's a stable, it's a, um, kind of a stable combination of these elements. So revisiting this idea of disrespecting your senses um, you can, you can think of it as a way to allow too much of some elements into your body. And in Ayurveda, everything that enters your body, whether through your mouth, through your eyes, or through any of your other sense organs has to be processed and digested. So digestion is hugely, um, is a like paramount um, concern and also given paramount status um, in Ayurveda. And uh, with that, disrespecting your senses allows things in your body that are hard to process. Um, we'll circle back around to digestion after we cover these other two causes of disease. So making choices from a place of ego. When's the last time that you ate something that you knew would likely cause you pain in the future? For me, um, <laughs> for me, it's making a conscious decision to eat things that contain gluten. Um, it's making a conscious decision to consume alcohol, even though I know that um, it's something, so this is, <laughs> this is one of the things I didn't mention in 2021. I significantly cut down on my consumption of alcohol. I went from a seven day a week wine drinker to a three day a week wine drinker. So Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are still wild card days um, for me, but Monday through Thursday is like, I won't, I won't drink. Um, and this was a huge shift. And this actually um, 
for a while, it was even Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were included in that. But this is one of the ways that I helped uh, also just try to give my liver every, every opportunity possible um, to recover. So, and this is also one of those things that made me realize just how addictive things that I don't consider myself addicted to are. Um, because this was a very hard habit for me to break. Um, so not to derail the conversation entirely, but this is another example of things that I know aren't good for me and I still struggle with and still, um, and still will, will gravitate towards, especially on the weekends. Um, the other thing, which we'll talk more about this in a future episode, but the other thing is something as simple as tomatoes, which I absolutely love. And those are, um, those aren't the best oftentimes for people with autoimmune conditions. Um, so for me, this making choices from a place of ego doesn't stop at food choices. Anytime that you choose to do something that past experience has taught you not to, whether this is choosing work over quality time with loved ones, making poor food choices for your body, um, choosing to maintain relationships that are detrimental to your mental and emotional wellness, hitting snooze for the third time in the morning rather than getting out of bed and meditating or exercising, staying up until 2 a.m. to watch Netflix, um, Overstanding yourself in your work or your personal life so that you have no time for your basic needs. And here I'm talking about like sleeping, eating, like taking the time to eat properly and taking bio breaks. Whatever all those things are that we all do um, and that we all know better and somehow we just cannot consistently do better, that's where we're putting our ego ahead of our health. Um, the same is also true in the opposite direction. For instance, exercising too much or too vigorously is contraindicated in Ayurveda. Ayurveda really focuses heavily on moderation in all things, um, especially physical things. So as to create an environment, well, I say especially physical things, that's not true in all things. And the, um, the purpose of this moderation is to create an environment where you're better able to connect with the spiritual aspect of your being. However, Ayurveda recognizes that we live in this world, and so we have to be able to interact with this world. And so there's also detriment in becoming too spiritual, because then we get ungrounded. Um, Ayurveda seeks health and harmony for both mind and body. And because of that, it helps you dramatically improve your connection to the subtle energies that are within you and also in your environment at large. Which leads us to the third um, cause of disease according to Ayurveda. And this is living in disharmony with nature. So let's talk about, let's start out here, talk about the daily rhythm and how this aligns with your circadian rhythm. Shift work and working the night shift is associated with higher risk for heart attacks, heart disease, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, GI conditions like ulcers, and irritable bowel syndrome, 
increased problems with fertility and pregnancy, and even cancer. In 2007, a subcommittee of the WHO actually stated that shift work is probably carcinogenic. Data shows a risk, um, or sorry, data shows a correlation between night shift work and a 50% increase in your risk of developing breast cancer. Data also suggests that there may be a correlation between night shift work and increased risk of colorectal and prostate cancer. And we've talked about the Ayurvedic times of day. Um, it's worth mentioning again here. So from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. and again from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. is the heavy time of day. Um, this is that kapha time of day if you're keeping up with the Sanskrit, um, that water and earth element are predominant. You can think of this as a rooted or grounded times as again, you're just waking up and getting moving in the morning and also preparing for bed in the evening. It's encouraged to use this time for building habits um, because, you, because you have those stable elements of earth and water working with you, um, it can help energetically speaking, to um, make those habits stick a little easier. Um, so a challenge for you is to just try exercising during that six to 10 window, either in the morning or the evening, and see, just notice whether you have more strength and stamina than at your normal time of day. Um, if, if you normally exercise outside of the, that window. So one caution here, if you opt for the evening six to 10 um, period, just do it kind of in the earlier time before, ideally before eight. So you've got time to wind down before bedtime. Um, then again, from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. and 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is the efficient transformative time of day. That's when Pitta predominates. And again, that's the fire and the water element. Um, this is likely the time of day when you're most productive at work. And um, the daytime part of this is, we already talked about earlier, that 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. is for your mind. It's for getting stuff done. Um, likewise, the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. is for your body. That's when all of the, that's when the rebuilding um, processes are most in effect at, at the night. So you really, like ideally you would be asleep by 10 p.m. so that you have that entire four hour window for your body to repair and rebuild itself. Um, Ayurveda strongly encourages you to be in bed at least with your eyes closed by 10 p.m. Then from 2 p.m. to 6 p.m. and also 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. is the light time of day, the time of day when we're most creative, the spiritual time of day, the vata time of day. So this is that ether or space element and the air and or wind element, whichever way you prefer to think of those. In the morning time, it's considered the best time for meditation and prayer. It's considered the best time for um, breathing practices. So in um, Sanskrit, those are pranayama. Um, it is also um, ideal to do these activities, like in the morning time, especially before breaking your fast. 
Um, so before you eat anything. Um, in Western medicine, or not even in Western medicine, but in modern Western terms, what does this look like? Like, how does any of this have any merit? Is it at all related to anything? Well, let's take a look at your circadian rhythm. So cortisol peaks in the morning. Some sources say about 30 minutes after you wake up. Some sources say that cortisol peaks between 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. Your basal body temperature takes a nosedive sometime around 10 p.m. So that's bedtime um, in Ayurveda. And your basal body temperature starts to climb again in the morning, peaking in the mid-afternoon. The tendency to fall asleep and stay asleep occurs during the decreasing phase of your body's of your um, body temperature circadian rhythm. So this is between that 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. Um, lastly, your melatonin levels precipitously drop beginning around 7 a.m. and they begin picking back up again around 8 p.m. So melatonin peaks sometime between about midnight and 3 a.m. It looks like these ancient seers were definitely on something. Expanding beyond the rhythm of the day, let's talk a little bit more about seasonal living. Like your body, plants, animals, stars, and planets, even the times of the day and the seasons display a predominant element or set of elements. The elements of summer are fire and winter, or, or sorry, are fire and water. Um, so summer is associated with that pitta dosha. Um, the elements of fall are air and wind and space. So fall is associated with vata dosha. Um, vata is common. Um, so air and wind in particular, like wind being motion or movement. Um, you think of all of the movement of the fall, like the huge shift from summer temperatures to winter temperatures, and also the change of the leaves and the falling of the leaves and the crisper air of fall compared to the summertime. Um, the elements of winter are also air and wind. Um, so air and wind, again, are, are, are synonymous. You can think of it as um, either one of those. And also space in, in the wintertime. And of course, this depends on where you live. You may start to see water and earth creep in um, to winter as these heavier elements um, come into play. Spring is most commonly associated with those heavier elements of earth and water. Um, again, depending on where you live, there may be like heavier spring snows, more rain in the springtime, and and uh, well yeah just sorry totally just uh spaced out thinking about <laughs> thinking about where i've lived for the past um it, like most recently i guess for the past 15 years in um a state where there were very heavy springtime snows and then also in the um also here in California where we get the rains in very late spring, like in the May, even into the June time period, just before um, the summer solstice. So anyways, 
Depending on where you live, the elements of wind and air and space may also make a reappearance in springtime. Um, so both fall and spring are seasons of transition and movement, and the appearance of those lighter elements can be expected. Um, now the question is, how do you live rhythmically with the seasons? So here, rather than going with the flow as is necessary for living in tune with the daily rhythm, for seasonal living, it's best to seek balance. And for this, just think about a hot summer day um, when the thermometer pegs out at 100. Are you reaching for a cup of soup or are you reaching for a slice of watermelon? What about on that first crisp, cool fall morning? Are you going to be eating mango or are you ordering a chai? Um, for balance in the summertime, it's easy to eat what's in season to balance the heat of summer. So common, um, really great foods for the summertime are cucumber, asparagus, broccoli, cilantro, summer squash, and zucchini, um, oats, tapioca, mint, watermelon, berries, and avocado. In fall and winter, eating warming foods and cooked food to um, balance the dry, cold qualities of wind and space are a really um, great choice. So um, again, just eating what's in season like pumpkins and carrots and millet and turnips and mustard greens, winter squash, cranberries, citrus fruits, those are all great choices. Um, in springtime, to counter that heaviness of the winter and the early spring seasons, you might find yourself craving sprouts artichokes, baby spinach, asparagus, arugula, and other spicy greens. In addition to diet, Ayurveda also pulls aromatherapy and color therapy in to help balance seasonal fluctuations and help you maintain a state of inner harmony as you live in sync with the seasons. Um, so aromatherapy, just speaking in general for it, some really great choices, of course, for the summer, are mint and cooling um, essential oils like sandalwood is a great choice. Um, and also vetiver. So these um, vetiver is a root. Um, it's, it's just a, it, it's also, it, uh, okay. So I could wax poetic for a while about vetiver. Um, one of the things that um, I've learned recently is that in some countries, they use vetiver as thatch for their roof because it is so cooling. So they've got this blanket of vetiver and their roots are just crazy. Um, they're like little, they're like almost like huge bundles of little carrots you can think of. I mean, they're brown, they're not, they're not orange, but huge bundles of little carrot-like tubers um, sticking out and they, um, as the root system and they are definitely cooling. So those are great choices in the, with the heat of, to counter the heat of summer. Um, for the winter time, warming, um, well, fall and winter time, warming essential oils such as uh, like cypress and turmeric and ginger and some of the spicier essential oils will help to counter the, the coldness of the season and the dry airiness of the season. 
And then in springtime, some really great choices are um, a, like a, a little pop of um, some of the brighter essential oils like um, geranium and citrus are great choices in the spring. Um, we'll we'll talk in more detail about aromatherapy in future episodes um, and some other choices for kind of living in tune with the season when it comes to essential oils. The other thing for, oh, and then color therapy. Uh, so with color therapy in the fall and winter time, you can use um, warmer colors, like of course gold and richer kind of more earth tones, brown and um, yeah, any of the warmer colors to help counter the coolness and the dryness of wintertime. And this is, this can be as simple as having a sheet of paper that's gold and staring at it for a while, that's golden color and staring at it for a while. Another great choice for this time of year is to incorporate candle gazing. So this is literally where it's called Chitaka. And there's actually an entire yoga practice around it. But the simple thing is like lighting a candle and just staring at the flame for a while. Um, in the springtime to counter the heaviness of spring, um, it would be kind of more pastel colors. The whites and light blues um, are great choices and even like green. Um, yeah, just thinking of spring pastels for the springtime. And then in the summertime, it would be cooler colors. Uh, this one, pastels may still be a great choice. However, um, you may find yourself yearning for things like deep blue and teal and green um, to kind of counter some of the heat of the summer. And green is one of these colors that even though it's cooler in nature, it can be heating. So oftentimes um, blue and teal uh, may be better choices, um, especially if you're hot natured to begin with. So I hope that with today's episode, um, just to circle back around to the original to how this whole episode started off, um, which is with me not really, with me struggling to find up right now in January of 2022. Um, because yes, over the, I feel like despite many steps forward in um, where I am with my health, I've also had some I, I, there's also some things going on with me right now that I can't explain um, that I'm working through. And this is, uh, this is again, just a quick note to that whenever and whatever you're doing, um, it's important not to do it in isolation and to really work with somebody um, with me right now that of course looks like working with a Western medical doctor and um, 
my lesson was well learned on the, from the Ayurveda standpoint in not using herbs in isolation without guidance from an Ayurvedic counselor or an Ayurvedic practitioner um, in my case. So again, uh, back to that's what led me to work with Dr. Teitelbaum to um, figure it out. And the really interesting thing is while she, she did prescribe quite a few herbs um, for me or recommend quite a few herbs for me. And where I am today is I'm not, when I started out seeing her, I started taking all those things. And where I'm at today is more focusing on the other aspects of Ayurveda, pulling the lifestyle, um, like pulling more of the aspects of the daily rhythm into my life, and also pulling more of the seasonal living and um, mindful eating habits into my lifestyle. Ayurveda definitely has some recommendations when it comes to what foods to eat for the seasons. And yes, there are food, um, there are food, there are recommended food combinations in Ayurveda. However, those aren't what I'm pulling from. It's more how I eat, like the manner in which I eat and the amount of mindfulness devoted to eating. So we'll also talk about that more in some future episodes as well. The, I think the last thing on this, wanted to mention this episode, so about um, how like each of us are comprised of these different doshas, and I didn't circle back to actually explain that dosha is Sanskrit for out of whack. Um, <laughs> so of those five elements, the air, uh, air, space, or let's start with space, air, fire, water, and earth of those five. And then the doshas, um, which contain, you know, two of the elements, um, the three doshas work together to build your constitution. Um, and not just your constitution, but the constitution of everything. I mean, as we talked about in this episode, each season has a constitution and everything in nature has a constitution. And so, and you also are not a single dosha. You have aspects of all three playing within you um, and building you up. And at any moment, your, uh, Ayurveda believes that your um, constitution is composed of the three doshas and like the, those ratios, how far off they are from when you were conceived is um, an indication of how imbalanced you are in this moment. So oftentimes, um, and this is really going to come up in the next podcast episode, oftentimes um, just thinking in terms of people and how some people they have health. However, they have to walk this super like narrow foot path to maintain health. Um, and, and this, this analogy comes straight from Dr. Leslie Deems, um, the acupuncturist and friend of mine, um, who says, yeah, some people, you know, they have to, they've got a, they've got a trail blazed for health, but it's a foot trail and they have to maintain and like stay super tight um, in how they live and not deviate from that path in order to maintain health. 
some people have a two-lane highway. Um, and some of us have a whole like eight-lane interstate um, that we're driving down. And I'm not one of these people. And I think we've all known those people. My grandma was um, one of those people. And she was definitely a Kafa um, constitution, like predominantly Kafa constitution. Um, although she definitely had some pitta in her nature, it just didn't, um, it didn't show up in, in ways that pitta normally shows up. So where I wanted to go with that is to say that um, when we're thinking about different types of diets, that seem to work for the masses. And when we're thinking about different things, whether that's medicine, whether it's herbs, whether it's like whatever it is that seem to work for the masses and it doesn't work for us, it may very well be because our constitution is different from theirs. And a, a combination of something as simple as where you live, plus your constitution, plus your diet, can greatly impact your health and like where you are and what you're able to do or not to do and still maintain health. Um, so if you are a Vata predominant person and that means that you have a lot of air and um, ether in your constitution, um, and we'll talk more about what that means, but oftentimes you're gonna be on that narrow footpath um, for helping, for trying to maintain your health. If you're Pitta, um, so you have a lot of fire and water in your constitution, generally you'll be on a two-lane highway. This is, um, this is not always true though, and especially not in our, not in the world we live in, where everything is so fast-paced and many of us have some sort of um, Vata imbalance. So this is where that there, there's too much air and ether, like we've got too much screen time and um, it's pushing us into a state of imbalance. And then that coupled with things like raw food diets, which is what we'll talk about next time on the podcast, um, just kind of exacerbates um, that condition. So anyways, um, I know this took kind of a... Um, I, and I didn't expect to turn at the end and might have might leave you with more questions than answers. I hope as a whole that this has um, that this has provided some insight into what Ayurveda is and hopefully um, in, ignited your curiosity for tuning into future episodes. So next week, or not next week, but next time on the podcast, I'll be sitting down with Bernadette Judge to talk about um, hormones and how they impact, of course, our health. And then um, after that conversation, we're going to turn this pretty Ayurvedic for a little while. And um, talk through some more principles of Ayurveda and also sit down with um, somebody who has been using Ayurveda to help heal her own autoimmune conditions. And this person isn't me. This is uh, Angela Perger. She's the um, host of Simple Ayurveda podcast. And 
she's been on this Ayurvedic journey definitely for longer than I have. Um, and she's one of my role models and um, how to pull Ayurveda into your life and do it successfully while still like living in Western society. Um, so anyways, that is what's up next on the podcast. Um, again, I, I, I hope this is um, maybe inspired you to think about um, how you view yourself a little bit differently. And again, just hopefully ignited your curiosity with wanting to learn more about Ayurveda. All right, until next time. Bye.